I've often heard it said that our greatest opposition as apologists is not necessarily a good counter argument, but it's distraction and apathy. And I think that is very true. I think beauty can help us cut through that. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Ken Keefley. And I'm Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture. In today's Christ and Culture conversation, we'll talk to Gavin Ortland about his new book on making sense of God. After that, we have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first, let's begin with our segment in the news. In the next few days, we'll celebrate two important days. On Sunday, January 16th, is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And the next day, January 17th, is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Now, Dr. Keithley, I see a lot of common ground uh, in these two days. So how can we commemorate them well as Christians? You are right that there is a great deal of common ground uh, in these two days because both of them are dealing with how we are to treat our fellow human beings as persons created in the image of God. That is true both uh, for the sanctity of life uh, Sunday and, of course, uh, Martin Luther King uh, holiday. And that is, uh, how am I to understand the other? Sanctity of life, uh, the question is, is this a potential human or is this a human with potential? And we do not see the fetus in the womb as someone who is merely potentially human. And the reason for this is, is because of how we understand uh, the doctrine of personhood. We are persons, first and foremost, because we are created in the image of God, who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's the thing that people need to remember. The, the concept of person is first, primarily, a theological category in which we understand that if someone is created in God's image, this means that they are given some inherent dignity and rights. And unless we see them that way, um, then we, we end up with all kinds of sociological or biological attempts to arrive at personhood. Very difficult to do that. When it comes to uh, Martin Luther King uh, Day, uh, what we have to recognize is, as Paul said on Mars Hill, we are all of one blood. There are not races, plural. There is just the human race, singular. There may be different ethnicities. There may be different people groups. But we are all descendants of Adam and Eve, and we are to uh, treat every person on this earth in that light. To uh, quote the old song, red and yellow, black and white, we're all precious in his sight. And I think we could extend that no matter how big, no matter how small. Uh, we're all persons and we're all have dignity in the image of God. Speaking of personhood, before we jump into our conversation with Gavin Ortland today, a reminder that our upcoming conference is called Exploring Personhood. It's coming on February 10th and 11th. We've got an all-star lineup of speakers, including Justin Barrett, John Baer, Mark Cortez, John Hammett, Carmen Imes, Amy Peeler, Jeff Schloss, and others. 
Registration starts at just $10, and there are virtual options available. So uh, go ahead and reserve your tickets at cfc.sebts.edu or click on the link in the show notes, and uh, we hope you can join us for this upcoming conference called Exploring Personhood. How do we make sense of God? This is the question that Gavin Ortland, our friend, poses in his new book, Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't, Dr. Keithley. Yes, and today we're delighted to have Gavin with us to discuss this book and much more. Gavin Ortland is a scholar, pastor, and writer. He serves as the senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Ojai in California, and he is the author of the new book, why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't. Gavin, thank you for being with us today. Hey, great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, the subtitle of your book is The Beauty of Christian Theism. And since the book is about apologetics, uh, your readers might expect you to begin with arguing from truth, but rather you begin with an argument from beauty. Why do you do that? Yeah, this is something I put a lot of thought into as I was working in this project. And for me, it's a both and. So I'm trying to offer arguments that appeal both to truth and to beauty. Um, these are two of the great transcendentals, the good, the true, and the beautiful. And I think this is a classical Christian approach is trying to show that the gospel is not just true, though that's essential, but also we need to show that it's good and that it's beautiful and that can better... Uh, touch the whole person, not just our minds, but our hearts, our imaginations. And I just feel that that's very important right now, in particular, as you look at our culture, and we're seeing this wave of deconstruction with all the different meanings of what that is involved. But I've often heard it said that our greatest opposition as apologists is not necessarily a good counter argument, but it's distraction and apathy. And I think that is very true. I think beauty can help us cut through that because beauty touches the heart. Everyone cares about beauty. And it also touches a lot of those who are uh, struggling with deconstruction, struggling with doubts, experiencing, you know, there's so much moral outrage right now and so much polarization. I think an appeal to beauty is just well-suited and well-crafted for the needs of the times right now. Let me ask you about that, Gavin. So I know we're going to talk about story in a minute and the role that beautiful stories play in inspiring us and inspiring other people. But just for a minute, you've mentioned some big words like transcendental and others. We have a number of listeners who they may not be familiar with that language, may not even be familiar with the broader theological and philosophical conversations about beauty. So for simplicity's sake, what do you mean by that which is beautiful? Well, maybe a way to make it plain at the street level is we want people, when we communicate the gospel, not just to have the response of, wow, that really makes sense, though we hopefully want to try to aim for that response also, but we also want to have people have the response of, wow, that touches the deepest longings in my heart. If that's true, if Jesus rose from the dead, this feels like being a little boy on Christmas morning. You know, this feels like learning the person you love loves you back. Those are the two metaphors I use throughout the book. Uh, not that there's no difficult aspects of embracing the gospel. I don't want to downplay that as well. But, you know, you think about it. If you move from, from a naturalistic worldview 
that is, that there's nothing beyond nature, and then you go to the idea of, well, what if actually Jesus rose from the dead? What I argue in the book is that this is an infinite change emotionally. Uh, it, not only is it a more plausible framework for interpreting the world, but it makes such a decisive difference for questions of meaning, for questions of, of what happens after death, for questions of morality, for questions of uh, personal identity. It, it couldn't be more emotionally and existentially relevant. And I just think it's helpful to try to help people feel that and see that. That reminds me of the approach of C.S. Lewis in that he not only wanted us to see that the Christian story is true, uh, but that it's, it's incredibly attractive in that it meets the fundamental longings, um, what he called, you know, the desires, um, uh, the search for joy, I think is how he described it. Mm -hmm. Gavin, take us then, and you've already kind of slid into this, but moving from that which is beautiful and sort of backing our way back into the story that centers on the person of Jesus and the truth of uh, not only his birth and his death, but most importantly, perhaps his resurrection. Tell us why story is important for how we share the gospel, for how we do apologetics. What does story have to do with all of this? Okay, sure. So the book is cast in a narrative frame. Basically, what I do is I go through four classical arguments for God, and I cast them as four aspects of a good story that every story needs. So the, the argument for God from the first cause becomes the author of the story. The uh, argument from design becomes the meaning of the story. The argument from morality becomes the uh, drama or conflict of the story. The argument from Christ becomes the hope or denouement or happy ending of the story. I find that helpful just in my own thinking because it draws the arguments together it makes them cohesive and unified as opposed to just separate standalone appeals. I also think story is just how human beings tend to function. Every human civilization sort of makes sense of reality through stories. You know, uh, it's been said that there have been civilizations that do not use the wheel, but there have been no civilizations that do not use stories. And I think even in our culture, we see that with movies and the powerful role that movies play in sort of shaping people's imaginations. I also think there's some particular benefits to narrative approaches to apologetics. I think it can help us have a more modest approach on the problem of evil. Uh, we may not have to have the full answer yet, as long as we have reasons to trust that there is an answer. I think narrative can help us see that. So there's lots of particular benefits like that. And I just find that it works. You know, if you make the invitation to people of kind of what kind of story makes the most sense intellectually and existentially of our world, and then you explore these different frameworks, Christian theism being one of them, um, that's an appeal that I think uh, people can often enter into. And it, it, it seems like a more invitational way to engage people. You mentioned movies uh, in your discussion of stories, and one could argue that movies have been the most popular way for stories to be communicated for the past 100 years. You say that movies, or at least most movies, display an instinctive moral framework. What do you mean? Well, I, I was reflecting on this a number of years ago, and it just sort of occurred to me that Every movie is basically telling the same sort of story over and over and over, good versus evil, uh, with typically good winning at the end. So you've got 
uh, moral dimension to the drama. Almost, I don't know too many movies that don't have some kind of form of good and evil. It almost seems like it comes down to that every single time. And of course, you want the good guys to win, right? Uh, sometimes there will be different expressions of how that plays out. The evil is not always personified, but or sometimes, you know, there's all kinds of fun variations of it. It could be aliens or, you know, but there's a, there's almost always a moral dimension. You almost always have the sense that you don't just want one side to win, but you have the sense one of, one side should win. There's a rightness to good defeating evil. And then secondly, almost all movies have a happy ending. And in the book, I spent a lot of time talking about one movie in particular that doesn't have a happy ending and the effect that, that had on Roger Ebert, the film critic. And so I won't give any spoilers about that. People might find that interesting to read, but I just draw attention to when movies don't have a happy ending, it can be very disturbing to us. And it's just a question for us to consider and to put to our friends. Um, why is that? Why is this framework of good versus evil with an eventual triumph of good over evil almost always with suffering and sacrifice and sacrificial love along the way. Where does that come from? Why is that so instinctive to us that we almost don't even recognize it unless we're looking for it because it's just assumed and normal. And I think uh, a Christian perspective has a, a good answer for that, a good explanation for that. And I talk about that from J.R.R. Tolkien throughout the book uh, on a naturalistic or atheistic perspective. I think that's much more curious to wonder about. Yeah, I think you're so right. Even, you know, we're, we're, we're at the Christmas season, and, and I was thinking the other day that one could sort the Christmas movies into two, two or three stories. One is the value of a family, whether it's Home Alone or Chevy Chase's Christmas Vacation. Uh, it's remarkable how many Christmas movies are about redemption, whether it is The Grinch or Scrooge, uh, the, all, of those, all of those great themes that you're talking about. So uh, we're, we're going to turn this in a little more of a personal direction, Gavin. I appreciate your willingness to, to let us kind of pry in a little bit. But before we do that, I've got to ask you, here we are talking about mo movies and beauty and inspiring stories. Uh, if you could only watch one more movie the rest of your life, what movie is it going to be? Oh, that's a great question. This is a different question than what's my favorite movie, right? Because yeah. you just got one, you want to have a long one. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, probably the Lord of the Rings trilogy, if I could, if I could cheat and sneak in the trilogy rather than one single movie, simply because yeah. there's so much to it that that usually isn't the answer I give for my favorite movie, but I do love it. And it it's so rich and lengthy and there's so much to it that you that's the kind of thing you feel like you could watch over and over again and it wouldn't get as tiresome but you could keep yeah. finding new things in it as the years go by and what is your favorite movie in the in the book i talk about two of my favorites one of them is a beautiful mind with russell crowe i just love the story of his redemption throughout that movie another is rudy uh i, I love the the story of his chasing his dream and yeah and i'll never i it never gets tiring to me to watch the scene where he finally sorry for the spoiler gets into notre dame and he's sitting on the bench and he opens the i probably shouldn't talk about it because i'll start getting emotional <laughs> or the when he actually I hope, I hope it's not spoiling either but gets in the game oh. you know i mean just the whole thing it's and thanks for bringing up football we always have to mention football somewhere along the way <laughs> all right back to the questions um this book gavin feels personal and, and you do you make it quite personal along the way but i'm curious even just kind of behind the pages of the book can you tell us a little more about your own story and navigating questions and doubt and how this book is a, a product of some of that yes yeah thanks for asking about that it really is personal there's two reasons for that um 
One is I've just had a lot of friends who unfortunately have uh, left the Christian faith. And in some cases, I was surprised. I didn't really see it coming. They seemed to have a very solid and vibrant faith. And then that happened. And so I've spent a lot of time talking with them and trying to understand. And that whole process has given me a compassion for people. Uh, sometimes uh, we think of doubt uh, or, or even apostasy as just one thing that always plays out the same. And I've come to see that it's very diverse. One person's story can be different from another's. And many people, it's a deeply painful process for them. And I don't think apologetical arguments are the only thing we need to do. We all Sometimes we just need to be a friend and listen and so forth. But I think they're one thing we need to do. They're, and uh, it's just really, so I, I really want to help. When I think about my YouTube channel, which is called Truth Unites, what I, the way I have learned to describe it is I want it to be like Velcro in the sense of something you, that sticks when everything else feels slippery. So I'm doing a lot of apologetics and other things just trying to say for people who are doubting, who are questioning, who are struggling, let's just start with God exists and Jesus rose from the dead. If we can get some confidence about those two things, then we can start rebuilding outward from there. Um, so that's one thing is I want to help people. The second reason is I've been through two of my own seasons of, I wouldn't, I don't even know how to describe it because I don't want to overstate it, but I would just describe it as kind of working through questions and struggles. Um, the word angst comes up as a way to describe it. One was in college, one was more recently. And there was just questions I was just working through. You know, it wasn't like I had even doubts necessarily, but just times where you come to see, ooh, this is more complicated than I realized, or oh, I don't have a good answer to that. Or, oh, wow, you know, more recently seeing there's a lot of problems in the church that I'm seeing. I'm trying to understand that. And that's confusing and difficult. And so for me, apologetics has been infinitely a relief and a comfort just to go back to these things that I can say, wow, there is such a solid foundation for maybe not every single detail that I grew up with, but the core of the Christian faith has an incredibly robust foundation. Um, there's so much, at least that's been my experience. In going, I've just found that to be so useful. So that's partly why it's personal for me too, is these arguments and this way of thinking about apologetics has been to me, like I call it in the book, like a life raft in stormy seas. It's been something I can cling to that, you know, I talk about the cosmological argument, like a, a, a railing on a steep staircase. Mm. When you're losing your balance, you can grab a hold of it. And there it is every time. And it's durable. And that argument and the others have just helped me so much. You mentioned deconstructing earlier. And as you said, it has a really broad, uh, I mean, it means different things to different people. Let's, let's think of it in some of the more positive ways that it can be understood. Um, it, particularly as we talk about dealing with doubts, I really do believe that most Christians should have a season in which they take things apart and make sure what's really at the center. Uh, mm -hmm. In that sense, deconstructing is a very positive thing in the sense that um, we ask ourselves, well, well, why do I really go to church? Uh, why, why do I go through the motions of, of this? Why am, I, why am I engaged in the things that I'm doing? And I think that uh, in that sense, um, deconstructing is a, is a very positive thing because we, we take it apart and, we, and, and hopefully whenever we, we, we take out all of the things at the circumference, when we arrive at the center, 
we want to find Christ there. We want to, we, we, do I really, am I really building my life on him or have I allowed things to get off kilter? And then, and then you mentioned again, uh, some of the things that where people struggle. I have met people who said that they don't struggle or they never have. I always think that they must be uh, wired psychologically very different from me because uh, it's been my experience and I, it seems to be the experience of most Christians that they have uh, the dark night of the soul, at least in some period of time in which they really do have um, that season in which they find out, do I truly believe? And what is it that I really believe? Uh, and so uh, I, I just received a letter or an email last week from someone struggling. Uh, you and I, as you said, we, we receive uh, requests, maybe not frequently, but often, uh, people who are struggling with doubts. So let's imagine that some of our listeners are asking these very kinds of questions that we're talking about. What would be the concrete steps that you would advise them? And of course, and I, it's okay to say the very first concrete step would be to buy my book. I, I'll, I'll <laughs> go ahead and I'll go ahead and we'll, we'll just go ahead and make that one point zero. Uh, first <laughs> buy my, my book, but then after that, what would be the what would be the first, second, and third? What would be the things you would encourage them to do? Okay. Let me mention four things, and this is not comprehensive, but the, this is kind of, I boil down my pastoral advice as I try to come alongside people in a pastoral way. Um, the first is try to do what you just very helpfully articulated of distinguishing different kinds of deconstruction. Try to make distinctions between the things that need to be deconstructed and the things that don't, and try not to think in an all or nothing way. Because my experience frequently is that when these doubts come, a lot of times they come for a reason, and sometimes they're things that should be doubted. Sometimes there are, there are beliefs that actually aren't biblical or aren't really, um, certainly at least are not sort of necessary to Orthodox Christianity. Maybe they're more around the periphery. Maybe, for example, someone grew up with certain views of the end times, and that's been punctured, and now they're starting to question things, and you can just help people say, wait a second, let's take each issue for what it is. And I do find that's why I talk about, you know, starting with the existence of God and the resurrection of Jesus and building outward from there. Um, it's helpful to do what I think Ben and I have talked about in other contexts of theological triage, where we're, you know, distinguishing the center and the periphery. And we're, we're saying some of these things, um, you might be deconstructing something that might be healthy to deconstruct. So try to distinguish the healthy and unhealthy deconstruction. The second thing that Tim Keller has helped me understand is doubt your doubts. Don't let it be a fair fight. If the doubt comes into your mind, hell cannot be real. A loving God really would not send people to hell forever. And that doubt, don't just let that doubt have free reign. Interrogate it, question it, doubt the doubt. Say, well, why, why should I believe that? Because all forms of doubt have an, are really an alternative kind of faith in some sense. And so, you know, don't immediately dismiss the doubt, but just don't give it unquestioned status in your mind. Let it be a fair fight, you know, doubt the doubts as well and interrogate them and say, do I really have, and, and look down the road at the alternative. You know, if, if we're saying, if you're questioning whether God exists, okay, one thing you can do is look down the road and say, suppose he doesn't, where does that leave me? And really think through the implications. I suspect many of the people who are leaving the faith are perhaps 
underprepared for how dark that tunnel will be as you keep walking down it. Because think about what it means for your for love, for justice, for morality, for the things you value. And I could say more about that, but I'm trying to be succinct here. The third thing is a simple practical thing of just take your time. Don't make anything suddenly. These are complicated questions. They're complicated issues. Sometimes for me, it takes like 10 years to get something, you know? And, and, and so just don't rush it. Don't make a premature decision. Feel really right in your heart and soul before you kind of officially commit to something. And then the last thing is pray. And I do believe there's a spiritual component to all of this and, and intellectual doubts. A great prayer someone can pray, for example, is God. I'm scared. I'm not sure if you're even hearing this prayer, but if you're out there, help me. If you're out there, reveal yourself to me. If you're real, show me that you're real. I believe God will honor those prayers if they're prayed in sincerity. And I think that the spiritual dynamic of this really is, I'm not even going to say involved. I'm going to say it's decisive. I really think there's a spiritual battle going on in each one of our hearts uh, that we're probably not fully even aware of how it's rumbling on underneath. And so that that spiritual dynamic of this must not be neglected. And ultimately, I do think that is where the battle is won or lost. Gavin, this is excellent. I don't say that very often on our podcast, but I mean that. And especially especially from an apologetics angle where uh, for so much of our at least recent decades of apologetic kind of history and literature, it aims only toward the head. And what you're doing aims at the whole person, maybe even beginning with the heart. And that's so helpful, I think. And that appeals to everybody. Um, so thank you for your good work. Thanks for your new book. And thanks for joining us today. Hey, great to be with you guys. Thanks so much for having me. Southeastern Seminary's mission is to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Almost all of Southeastern's degrees are available fully online, so whether you're in your living room or the classroom, you can receive high-quality theological education. Get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. Now it's time for another edition of On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where we tell you what books we're reading right now. Dr. Keithley, today, what's on your bookshelf? In 2018, we had Ross Douthat at the Bush Center for Faith and Culture. Uh, Ross is a columnist with the New York Times. He's also a person of faith, just a, a remarkable person. At the time we had him in 2018, I did not realize, he did not tell us this, that he was recovering from a serious chronic illness that afflicted him in 2015. In fact, he, I, I, if I, I can't really say that he is even recovered to this day. He is, I guess the best way he would put it is that he is recovering. Anyway, he has written a book called The Deep Places, a memoir of illness and discovery. And Penny and I just finished the book last month, and Ross is one of those eloquent writers that um, what he writes is compelling. And this is a magnificent story, uh, and I think that anyone who has struggled with a chronic illness or if you have someone you care about 
who is struggling with a long-term chronic illness. This is a book that you're going to want to have because he, he explains about what it was like to become ill and they cannot find out what is wrong with him. And he goes on to describe how for a while there they even wondered, is this psychosomatic? Is this something just in his head? And all this time he is experiencing excruciating uh, 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 symptoms. Eventually, after a great, after so many doctors and so many specialists, it's finally determined that he has Lyme disease, and it is a terrible chronic case. And then he goes on to talk about what it took for him to go through that and come out on the other side. Uh, and so he is, I think, as he would say it, you know, he doesn't have a pretty bow tie at the end of it. He is in the process of recovering. The, that's not the point. It's not. It doesn't have just this neat, tidy clean ending. In fact, that is the point of the book, is that for believers whom God has called to experience chronic illness, we, we need to have sensitivity and grace towards them. And this book does a great job of explaining what they're going through. And for, like I said, uh, for someone who is experiencing it or someone who knows someone who's experiencing it, this is a book for you. Well, I actually look forward to reading that myself. So I'm going to put that on my personal reading list. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Keithley. And thank you all for listening today. If you enjoy Christ and Culture podcast, take 30 seconds to go to Apple Podcast and give us a rating and review. It may seem like a really small thing to do, but it goes a long way to helping us spread the word about the Christ and Culture podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.